Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be covering Philippians and Colossians. Now these letters are fairly short, but there's a lot in here. Philippians is one of four letters that Paul wrote when he was in prison. The letters that Paul wrote when he was in prison are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And we know this because he references it. For example, in Philippians chapter 1, there's at least four places in the very first page where he references his bonds. We read that in verse 7, 13, 14, and 16. Now, in this letter, even though he's in prison, the entire letter is full of joy and full of goodness. He's so happy, and he's rejoicing. Look in verse 18. He says, I therein do rejoice, yea, and I will rejoice. He, he has this future expectation of being full of joy, even though he's in prison. And so he's expressing his gratitude for the church in Philippi for their support and their partnership in the ministry. You see, the saints in Philippi have been donating to Paul's missionary efforts to help keep him on a mission. And so even though he's in prison, he's full of happiness. He's also anticipating the likelihood of future persecution that the church will face, and he encourages the saints in Philippi to stand together. There's this hint in the fourth chapter of Philippians of a disagreement between a couple of the house churches. And so there's some internal division going on with these saints. And so Paul in Philippians is going to encourage them to have unity and to serve each other. In verse 13, when he talks about his bonds, he talks about them being manifest in all the palace or all the praetorium. The praetorium was an official building set up by Herod the Great on the Acropolis in the city of Caesarea between 22 and 12 BC. The praetorium was in Caesarea. Now that is in Israel. So there are some people that think that Paul's writing this from prison when he's in Caesarea Maritima, which is in Israel. Now, if you remember, that's at the end of the book of Acts. He's taken there and he's held captive in prison awaiting a ship to come and take him to Rome. So there are some that say he's in prison there. There's others that say, no, that perhaps he's in prison in Ephesus. And then a third interpretation is that, no, perhaps this is a prison letter that Paul is writing when he's under house arrest in Rome. And so we really don't know, but the idea is that he's in a place where the Romans have control and they are guarding him and Frankly, I'm kind of torn. On one hand, I see this as his writing this letter when he is in Caesarea Maritima. On the other hand, when you read some of the stuff towards the end of the first chapter about his desire to depart, to leave this life, to me, that sounds more like he's in Rome, that this is towards the end of his life, closer to when he's going to be martyred. So just know that he's writing this prison letter and we don't know where he's being held. Now, another thing that's important in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, is Paul is addressing the saints in Philippi, but then he says, with the bishops and deacons. The word bishops here is episkopoi, uh, the plural dative of episkopos. 
episkopos, to look upon. That's where we get the word for overseer or bishop. Bishops were overseers. And this is important because Philippians is considered an authentic letter of Paul. And Paul is talking to bishops. One of the reasons why this is important is because many scholars have theorized that bishops do not arise until the second century. Their feeling is that in the early church, there were these loose house churches that were operating and there wasn't necessarily oversight. I I think that it's complicated because there really are two sides to this debate. But one of the things that we do see here is that Paul is writing to bishops and this is an authentic letter. On the other hand, we have scholars such as Walter Bauer, and some have called his his work the Bauer Thesis or the Bauer Hypothesis, and his hypothesis was essentially that early Christianity was very diverse and comprised various competing Christianities, each with its own beliefs and practices. Walter Bauer argued that what eventually became Orthodox Christianity emerged as the dominant form only in the second century, suppressing all other forms of Christianity that held different beliefs. Now, I think there's some traction to what he's saying. I think that the evidence in the New Testament is suggesting that there were many different versions of Christianity in the first and second centuries, and that orthodoxy took some time to develop, and in the midst of its development, the apostles died, and the keys of the priesthood and the direction of the seers, the prophets and seers, went away. And we see this in the text. If we read the Didache, uh, it's a document that was circulated in the early churches but is not in our canonized text. In the Didache, it talks about the church as an old and failing woman. We have the Montanus controversy that arises in early Christianity, where we have this guy named Montanus who comes out and says, hey, you guys don't have revelation anymore. We need to bring revelation back. And the early Christians are acknowledging that that part of their belief system has been lost. So it is complicated. But what I want to point out is that Paul, in this letter, which is considered authentic, is writing to bishops. I believe, from the evidence that I've read so far where, where I sit, is that there were bishops in early Christianity, but the hierarchical Christianity that existed were bishops of the cities that were bigger than others. So for example, if I was the bishop of, say, Jerusalem, and then somebody else was a bishop of, of, say, some place in the outskirts of Galilee, the bishop of Jerusalem would hold preeminence over a bishop that was over a flock that was smaller. And that established a hierarchical system where the bishops over the larger cities held preeminence. And that system, I believe, in my opinion, was part of the apostasy. I don't see, for example, a bishop in Salt Lake City being more important than a bishop in Sandy, Utah, or a bishop in Los Angeles having preeminence over the bishop of Bakersfield. But that system did arise in early Christianity, the system whereby bishops that were over larger cities had a grander episcopate than those that were bishops over smaller cities. I think this is important because we see bishops and deacons in an authentic letter in the very first verse in Philippians chapter 1. So Bryce, how do you look at the letter of Paul to the Philippians. I love the book of Philippians, and here's what I have. In my scriptures, in the top two corners at the very beginning of Philippians, I have two scriptures that are themes of this whole book. One scripture comes from the allegory that Jacob gives us from Zenos about the wild olive tree. 
Do you remember when the Lord of the Vineyard places a portion out in the nethermost part? And when they come back to visit it, it's growing, it's, it's developing and producing fruit. And the servant kind of questions the Lord. And he says, well, how is it that you came here? This is the worst spot of ground. Why did you bring it? And then here's the verse that I quote. It's Jacob chapter 5, verse 22. Counsel me not, I knew. That is one of the biggest themes, not just what is said in the book of Philippians, but the context from which Philippians is taken. There is such a bond between Paul and the Philippian saints. And remember, that's not where Paul wanted to go. Paul wanted to go to Bithynia. Counsel me not, I knew. So now let's go back to Acts chapter 16, where Paul wanted to go to Bithynia. Now let Bithynia represent all the things in your life that you wanted. I wanted to go here. I wanted this choice. I wanted to take that road in my life. And then the Spirit comes along, or God sets the circumstance so that he stands up and says, no, Paul, come over to Philippi. So Philippi represents where we ended up, where the Lord put us. Instead of the path that I would have chosen, which is Bithynia. So in my scriptures, that phrase, counsel me not, I knew, is one particular color. In my scriptures, it's orange. And then I went through the book of Philippians, and I highlighted every indication that, my goodness, Heavenly Father knew what he was doing. This was such a blessing, such a greater blessing than Bithynia ever would have been. And so let me just show you a few of those. Philippians chapter 1, verse 2, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. I think no matter how bad life got, Paul thought about the Philippian saints. At least I've got the Philippian saints. They were his joy in pain. I love verse 8. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you in all the bowels of Jesus Christ. Here is a man who loved the Philippian saints. And as you read, they loved him. They are financially providing for him. They care about him. There is such a bond between Paul and the Philippian saints. And remember, that's not where Paul wanted to go. Paul wanted to go to Bithynia. But the Lord knew. So how many times in your life can you look back and see how much better Philippi was than Bithynia? To me, that's what this book represents, not just what he says to the Philippian saints, but who they are and what they represent, that God knew what he was doing in my life, and that the path he led me down was much better, even though it may have been a painful path. That, to me, is one of the messages of this book. Yes, he's in prison, but oh, I've got the Philippian saints. Yes, he's being scourged, and his life is challenging, but oh, I've got the Philippian saints. You know, Bryce, as you're talking about this, it really reminds me of the fourth chapter, verse 1, where he says, My brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and my crown, 
So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. He really, really does reach out to these people and loves them with great love. He does get into some division they're having in the fourth chapter, which we'll talk about. But overall, you really do sense that in here, don't you? And you don't see that in his other epistles, not like you do to the Philippians. It's not Galatians. There's certainly this tenderness of heart. And so those of you who have lived long enough to see that your Philippi was better than your Bithynia are going to read this and say, yep, yep, Paul, I'm with you. God knew what he was doing. I went where he wanted me to go, and it was such a blessing. Those of you who are just turning away from Bithynia and on your way to Philippi saying, what in the world are you doing to me, Lord? That's the way I wanted to go. You need to read this whole Philippian story and say, okay, okay, I trust, Heavenly Father. I trust. When I was hired by the church to be a seminary teacher, they sent me to this little teeny town in Arizona by the name of Thatcher. And my wife and I rented a car and we drove out to Thatcher. And we're from Salt Lake Valley. I'm from a very large city where every convenience was at your fingertips. And my hand was on the gear shift as we started to approach Thatcher. And my wife kind of put her hand on top of mine and just started to squeeze. And when we saw the sign welcoming us to Thatcher, Arizona, for the very first time, my wife and I both looked at each other like, really, this is where we're going to live? We wept a little, driving into Thatcher, thinking that this was now our home, and everyone we knew and everyone we loved was behind us. Now, fast forward eight years, eight years later, Oh, how we wept when we left. Oh, how that became our home. And we loved those people and still do. They are still near and dear to our heart. And so often I say, thank you, Lord, for not sending me to Bithynia, but sending me to Philippi. Because that has changed my life. Those of you who are turning away from your Bithynias and wondering what the Lord is doing, those of you pulling into your Thatcher, Arizonas, you just wait. The Lord knows what he's doing. And someday you will see his hand in your life. Now that leads to my second theme within the text, especially as Paul writes from prison. The second scripture I have written in the corner of my Philippians is Doctrine and Covenant section 122, verse 7. After the Lord says, if, shall, if thou shalt be cast into the pit and all of those horrible things happen to you, he says, Know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. That's the doctrine that Paul is realizing in his prison experience. All these things shall give the experience and shall be for thy good. Now, Paul's going to say it beautifully. I love chapter 1, verse 12. I would that you should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. In verse 19, he says, I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He's in prison, and he's saying, 
This is a good thing. This is going to turn to my salvation. And I love how he words it at the end of verse 20. He says, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be in my life or in death. That this experience, though, I mean, it can't be fun to be in prison. It can't be the road Paul wanted or that he was going to choose. Little Paul growing up never said to himself, gee, I hope I end up in prison. But there he found himself in prison for Christ's sake, and he's realizing what a blessing him being in prison is to him and to others. Paul sees that in prison, his prison experience is a blessing because of what's happened to other people. Notice in verse 13, he says, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace where he was being kept in his prison experience. Notice what happened, verse 14. Many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, maybe what makes your pain valuable isn't what happens in your life, but maybe it's what happens in someone else's life. And the disciple of Christ is thrilled at that idea because that's exactly what Jesus did. His pain was a blessing to others, and it made it worthwhile. I'm happy to be in bonds and be in prison if you are blessed by it. Again, let me give you a personal example. My wife gave birth to 10 children, nine very normal, very picture-perfect deliveries. And then came the 10th. After nine very normal births, our 10th child came via C-section. And Jen and I are like, why in the world would the Lord have my wife go through a C-section? Well, we happened to have that day in the room with us our oldest daughter, who wanted to be there for the birth of our youngest. She happened to be pregnant. She was married, but wanted to be with her mom during the delivery. That daughter ended up having a C-section for her first and her second. And we wonder if perhaps my wife's unfortunate circumstance of having to have a C-section after nine was not for my wife, but for the daughter in the room who would then give birth twice via C-section, because it calmed her. It opened her eyes and gave her hope to not be so afraid of a C-section. And looking back, my wife says, I'm fine to have gone through that for her sake. I'm happy that my prison experience blessed you. It made the prison experience worthwhile for me. In fact, it makes this whole life worthwhile. Turn to verse 23. Oh, does this tug at my heartstrings for Paul? I just want to run back in time and just hug him. Paul says, you know, I am in a strait betwixt two. Having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which for me, I think he's saying, would be far better. You know, guys, I just wish this were over. 
I wish all this pain were over. You know, Bryce, this to me makes me think that he's writing this toward the end of his I life. I think he's seen so much, and it keeps coming. The prison doors keep coming, and he's saying, you know what? I'm ready to go. I'm ready for this to be over. It doesn't sound like a young Paul. It doesn't. But then the next word in verse 24 is, nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. That's a profound statement. I wish this were over. I'm ready to go. I'm ready for all of this to end. Nevertheless, for me to stay and endure it all is more needful for you. Having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Oh, the celestial truths that radiate from that, that would make no sense to someone focused on themselves. But that is a higher way of thinking. I wish it were over. I am ready to be done, but I am going to stay for you. So bring it on, Lord. Whatever I have to go through, whatever prisons I have to go to and bless them. Now, as one of the people, sorry, as one of those who have been deeply blessed because Paul stayed, wherever he is, whatever you're doing, Paul, thank you. Thank you for going through it. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for living in that prison and writing those letters. Because 2,000 years later, it has blessed me. And if that made it worth it, then I am committed to go through my prisons and write the letters I need to write in my pain so that someone else might be blessed. I'm going to carry it on, Paul. I'm going to pick up the torch, and I'm going to carry it on, and I'm going to live with whatever challenge comes because of your example, because maybe, just maybe, in my pain, it might bless someone else and bring them to Christ, and their joy in Christ is worth it for me to go through it. With those words, Paul issues some counsel for the saints and Philippi to stand fast together and be unified. Now, chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 in the King James can be rather difficult to to break down. I'm going to read a different translation, and I think this, to me, makes more sense. Only worthily of the good news of Christ conduct ye yourselves, that whether having come and seen you, whether being absent, I may hear of the things concerning you, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one soul, striving together for the faith of the good news, and not terrified in anything by those opposing you, which to them indeed is a token of destruction, and to you of salvation, and that from God. 
he talks a little bit about this in the second chapter, where he says in verse 2 of chapter 2, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife and vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem each other better than themselves. And then I love verse 4 where he says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. He really wants the people in Philippi to be one. He wants them to avoid the divisions that seem so easily to beset the saints. This is really kind of laid out in the fourth chapter. Now, in the fourth chapter, in verse 2, he's talking to a couple of women that are having some division. We think that these two women were part of different house churches that existed in Philippi. And these two women, in verse 2, he asks them to be of the same mind in the Lord. And then he also encourages them to listen to his fellow laborers. And then he mentions one of his fellow laborers named Clement. Now, Clement may be the author of First Clement, a late first century Christian letter from Rome to Corinth, as tradition suggests, but we need to know this, that Clement is a common Roman name. And so whether it was the individual that wrote this famous first century document or not, we just know that he mentions this individual, and there is some tradition that seems to suggest that the author of First Clement was this fellow laborer with Paul. And if that's true, that's pretty cool that some of the early leaders in the church are mentioned here, you know, besides the apostles. Uh, We have this reference to Clement. Now notice here, when he's talking to these individuals, Yodia and Syntyche, these two divided women were members of the community of Christ, and he's encouraging them to settle their differences. For Paul, unity in the community amongst the Christians is more important than whatever differences they have. And these differences could really hurt spreading the gospel. Now, these two women did struggle together. As we read this, it kind of lays itself out in the Greek, and we give some stuff in the show notes on this. But just know that their struggling caused some problems. And Paul's heard about this, and so he's asking them to, to knock that off. Now, I think there's some application here in our life. If we're trying to live the gospel, but we're having in our hearts uh, division or enmity towards those that we're working with, it really can uh, hurt the work. I think the work still goes forward, but I think the degree to which we enjoy that light uh, can be diminished as we have disagreements. I think anyone who's served in a calling in the church realizes this, that we all are people, and as we rub up against each other, sometimes it's difficult. And I think what the gospel of Jesus Christ is asking us to do is to look outside of ourselves. That's kind of what Bryce was just talking about in chapter 1, where Paul says, you know, this is not like my best situation. This is not what I would have chosen, but you know what I'm doing? I'm doing what is needful because it is needful for you. And I love the advice he gives in chapter 4. We, this is our 13th article of faith. He says, finally, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. You can imagine these two people, I, I kind of picture the division, meaning both of them thought they were doing what was right, but they were doing it differently than each other. 
And their conclusion was, well, my right is better than your right. So you should do it my way. And the other one is saying, no, my right is better than your right. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, if anything's right, if anything's good, if anything leads you to Christ, don't be so opposed to it. Open your mind and see goodness around you. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does not have a monopoly on goodness or kindness or Christ-like behavior. And if you see goodness anywhere that is leading people to Christ, think on these things. Let it into your life. Let's not create so much division when both people are trying to do something good. There ought to be kind feelings for each other and unity of purpose, because even though you're going about it a different way, we're trying to do something good. And if we are trying to do something good, why be so divided over it? I think the presence of that advice in our 13th article of faith ought to get some attention this week as we ponder that. Since you're talking about it and since we're on this page, I'm just looking here at Philippians chapter 4, and you just read verse 8. I'm just going to go up to the sixth verse. The King James reads, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. That first bit in the Greek reads, Maiden merimnate. And my translation of that is essentially, in no way be anxious. Uh, Maiden, in no way, or do not. Paul's basically saying, Hey, don't be overly anxious about these things. And it's everything you're talking about, Bryce. This idea of we live in this divided society where everyone's frustrated and there's all this anxiety. And Paul's focus is on Christ. I mean, if you go to the seventh verse, he says, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. To Paul, he's he's really asking these saints who he loves, Don't be overly anxious. Just focus on the Savior. And then verse 8, all the things you just read. I mean, that's the 13th article of faith. If you immerse yourself in goodness, things are going to work out. Now, we have to go back to chapter 2. We we really do. Because there's so much good stuff going on in, in the second chapter of Philippians. So right after he talks about in the first few verses about being like-minded and having the same mind and avoiding strife, he then starts to talk about Jesus. And I want to read some of this. So go to the fifth verse. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I just love verse 12, where he just emphasizes how much he loves them and how good they are even when he's not there. But as far as his discussion about the Savior, look at verse 7. He made himself of no reputation. 
The Greek reads as follows, rather he emptied himself. That's literally what it says in the Greek. Jesus, who was a God before the earth was made, he was a God, the premortal Jehovah. He was the spirit son of his heavenly father. He had not yet taken upon himself flesh. He emptied himself of his glory. Nephi is going to talk about this as the condescension of God, that that he descended down to earth and became as we were. And it says, after he emptied himself, he took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And then he goes all the way down. He humbles himself and is, is killed. He humbles himself and goes down upon the cross. And then God, the Father, exalted him. And so Jesus goes all the way down, all the way down to the depths, past even what it means to be a man, but to be a servant, and then dies on the cross as a criminal, and then is exalted. And because of this, every knee should bow. One of the reasons why I think this is important is because Paul is emphasizing that Jesus became as we are. He became as a person, as a man, and that he emptied himself as, of his glory to know what it's like to have the mortal experience. So let's pause on that doctrine. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So you need to think like he thought. And that is that it's not robbery for me to think I can become like God. None of us consider Jesus in any way doing something wrong if he was striving to become like God. But he became a man. Doesn't that suggest that it's possible for a man, a woman, you, to become like God? So many people criticize that doctrine from other faiths and say, you Mormons, you think you can become like God. And that's preposterous. And I wonder how many members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints also think it's preposterous when they look at their own life. How could I ever be like Heavenly Father? But that was the very reason Jesus became a man, emptied himself of his glory, and sacrificed, is so that you and I can obtain everything that Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother are and have. We are here as children to become like our parents. But the path to get there is the path that Jesus led, that he emptied himself of his glory and sought the Father's glory. He became a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Therefore, I think Paul is saying we need to do two things. Number one, we need to have it in our mind. Let this mind be in you that I can, little old me with all my imperfections, as far away as that seems, I can become like Heavenly Father. I need to have faith not just in Jesus, but in me that I can do this. It may be a difficult path, but I can follow this path. I can become like Heavenly Father. So that's the plea that Paul is making, is it is not robbery to think that we could become like Heavenly Father. Jesus did it. So we can do it with the Savior's help. But you're going to have to, verse 12, you're going to have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's going to be work ahead.
We need to strengthen our muscles. We need to, as President Nelson said, we've got to take our vitamins because there's work to be done. But know that you can do it. Have faith in his ability to save you and that the whole plan is designed for his children to become like him. Elder Oaks talked about verse 12, and he said, Are Latter-day Saints susceptible to heresies? The Apostle Paul wrote that we should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Could that familiar expression mean the sum total of our own righteousness will win us salvation and exaltation? Could some of us believe that our heavenly parentage and our divine destiny allow us to pass through mortality and attain eternal life solely on our own merits? On the basis of what I have heard, I believe that some of us, some of the time, say things that can create that impression. We can forget that keeping the commandments, which is necessary, is not sufficient. As Nephi said, we must labor diligently to persuade everyone to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved, after all we can do. In his famous poem, Invictus, William Ernest Henley hurled man's challenge against fate. With head bloody but unbowed, determined man is unconquerable. The last verse reads as follows. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Then Elder Oaks continues. Man unquestionably has impressive powers that can bring to pass great things by tireless efforts and indomitable will. But after all our obedience and good works, we cannot be saved from the effect of our sins without the grace extended by the atonement of Jesus Christ. We've talked about this a lot. We do need to do our part, but it is the Savior that saves. But at the same time, Paul is telling them, hey, we do need to get to work. I really like what he says in verse 15, that we need to be those that shine as lights in the world. That is the invitation. We live, as verse 15 says, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation or a crooked and perverse generation. But we can, as Paul was, shine as lights in the world, even in the prisons of our lives. We can find ways to shine as lights so that we can say, as Paul says, I joy and rejoice with you all. If you go to chapter 3, in the very beginning, Paul warns them to beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I say more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. And then he goes on, talking about his pedigree and who he is. But as to his reference of dogs, it seems to be that Paul is warning the saints in Philippi against the influence of the Judaizers. We talked about this back when we talked about Galatians, as there were teachers that were coming from Jerusalem, traveling Jewish Christian teachers that were teaching the people that Paul has baptized that they have to live the complete law of Moses if they're to be true Christians. And Paul seems to be warning the saints in Philippi to watch out for these guys. And then Paul backs it up with his pedigree where he says, hey, I was more 
Jewish than these guys that are coming around. Verse 5, I was circumcised. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. If there's anybody who knows the law, Paul's saying, hey, it's me. And what I'm here to tell you guys is that really we need to have trust in Christ, not trust in the law. And he even says that at the end of verse 8, where he says, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. So for Paul, it's all about the Savior. In chapter 3, verse 12, we read, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. Essentially in verse 12, he says this, he says, not as though I had already attained. In the King James, it reads, I count not myself to have apprehended. I think that translation is a little bit clunky. That's just me. I think reading it as not as though I had already attained is probably a better translation. In this verse and in verse 14, he's saying, I haven't been saved. I haven't seized salvation yet. I haven't grasped it yet. I haven't held it with my hand. That lab stem is to receive, but it's also to take it by the hand. And he's inviting the saints to press towards the mark and be perfect, be thus minded, to press forward. And so I really like this because in Paul's view, he's not done yet. The Lord isn't done with him, and he's not done with the saints in Philippi. This is what one commentator said. Many modern Christians claim to be saved through the pure grace of Christ and by the witness of the Spirit before they have necessarily demonstrated their complete faithfulness. As Paul indicates, to achieve salvation, even with the indispensable aid of Christ, is not easy, nor is it instant. We must work at it, even with fear and trembling. Even near the end of his life, Paul himself announced that he had not attained perfection. That's what we're reading in verse 12 of chapter 3. He was still reaching for it, still pressing towards the mark for the prize of eternal life. Regardless of how well the saints in Philippi were living, Paul counseled them to keep going. I think that's important. I think we can miss that because, frankly, I think verse 12 can be a little bit clunky. But that's what he's saying. I haven't got it yet, guys, but you know what? Keep going. And he said this over and over again in his other epistles, that the earnest of our exaltation, the earnest money, is the Spirit. When we receive the Spirit, that's the Lord saying to us, hey, you are on the path, keep going, you're going to make it. Now that leads us to verse 13 of chapter 4, one of the most well-known verses of Paul's writings. Um, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. He really is the source of our strength. And I love that President Nelson addressed that recently and said, look, when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, my burden is light. He in no way was saying on its own, the burden is light. Living a Christ-like life is not an easy thing. But what makes it easy is when you are determined to follow Christ, he provides strength to carry the burden. That's how it becomes light. He gives us strength. Rather than taking the burden away or even lightening the load, he just strengthens the backs that hold it up. 
And so Paul says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. But that requires a determination to follow Christ and obey and keep his commandments and do what he asks me to do. Only then, when I yield to Christ, only then does he provide the strength that makes the burden seem light. That's good. At the end of his epistle, he talks about saluting those that are of Caesar's household. If you're interested in that, go to the show notes. We'll put some stuff in there. Now we come to the epistle of Paul to the Colossians. It seems that some early Christians were drawn to mystical and apocalyptic elements that were present in Judaism, which were influencing the culture. Scholars have proposed various backgrounds for the errors that the people in Colossae faced, and some of these errors include mystery cults, broader Hellenistic mysticism, Hellenistic Judaism, and even Qumran-type Judaism. It can be kind of confusing. Frankly, chapter 2 of Colossians can be one of those chapters, especially towards the end there. It can be a little bit confusing. What is Paul warning them about? And we'll look at that, and we'll talk about it. But it seems to be that the Colossians seem to have a lot of diverse opinions of what it meant to follow Jesus. Add to the complexity that Paul's never been there. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, hey, I look forward to meeting you guys, but I haven't yet. I haven't seen you in the flesh. So what it seems to me, what he has are reports of what's going on there, that there are some divisions amongst the Colossians as to what it means to follow Jesus. In the show notes, we put a map so that you can see kind of where it is. This place that he has not yet visited is in Asia. So let me give you a modern parallel. Do you remember how Joseph Smith said that there was in the place where he lived an unusual excitement on the subject of religion, and it commenced with this group, but it soon became general among all the sects in that region. Indeed, the whole district of the country seemed to be affected by it, and great multitudes united themselves to the different religious parties, which created no small stir and division among the people, some crying, low here, and others, low there. That's what's going on. There's a lot of different parties saying, hey, God is over here. Salvation is over here, and you've got to do it this way. And then another group over there saying, no, 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 salvation is over here. You've got to do it this way. And Paul's trying to do exactly what Joseph Smith did, is bring them to the excellency of Christ. There is no other path but Christ. So the the gist of Colossians is there's a lot of tug and pull to go in directions that are away from Christ. And that's very appealing. And there's going to be a lot of people who are clamoring for you to come to them. But Jesus is greater than all of them. You can't be fooled. I think Paul is kind of channeling a little Isaiah. Do you remember Isaiah chapter 40? He asks twice in that chapter, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? He says that in 18. He says it in 25. He says it again in chapter 46, verse 5. That question comes up three times, at least in Isaiah. To whom will you liken me or make me equal and compare me that we may be like? So Paul seems to be saying, look, let's find the real Jesus. Which way are you going to compare And then what Paul is now going to do, so he he addresses the pull that's being made on them to follow other paths, 
And then Paul says, let me preach Christ Jesus to you. Let me present who Jesus is. There is no other Jesus than this Jesus. And that's what I love about the book of Colossians. I love the other epistles of Paul. They're wonderful, and they address wonderful doctrine. But Colossians is the excellency of Christ Jesus, the excellence of the Savior. Now, let me put Colossians into our modern-day scripture and make a comparison here. One of the most prominent and landmark sections of the Doctrine and Covenants is section 88. It is deep and profound and wide and broad, and it is all about Christ. It begins with this idea of who Jesus is. We start talking about Jesus in verse 5, and then he ascended up on high and descended below all, in that he comprehendeth all things, that he might be in and through all things the light of truth. So that is one major component of who he is. Jesus is light. Jesus is creation. Jesus is Genesis. Jesus is light. Now jump to verse 13 of section 88. The light which is in all things, which giveth life to all things. So there's our second one. Jesus is life. He is resurrection. He is cleansing. He is redemption. He is life. He is light and life. And now back to verse 13, we add a third one, which is the law by which all things are governed, even the power of God. Jesus is light and life and law. Now go read Colossians and see if you can find those three ideas. I have them in three different colors. Let me just give you a few. You will have a marvelous little study if you will look for those three identities of Christ and not be fooled by any other imitation. So first of all, Jesus is light. He starts in 16. 16 and 17 are primarily where he talks about Jesus is light. Verse 16, by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Jesus is light. He is the power that turns the switch on. The Greek word is sunestaken, and it comes from two words, soon, which is together, and histami, which is to stand. And I think what Paul's saying is, because of Jesus, everything is stood up together. And in, in my mind, what, the way I see that word is, he's the glue by which everything has been put together and even by which it stands. And it kind of reminds me of that verse, and I know you know it, Bryce, where King Benjamin says, the Lord is even lending you breath. Yep. He is the glue which puts everything together. So I love the English consist. I love that in the footnote it says C, D, and C, 88, which is where you're going. But that word, soon is taken. It's like he's putting it, it's all stood up, and it's all stood up together because of Jesus. Everything, and by the way, to histami, to set it up, is to make it established. So it's just a really cool word. Light. He is light. Now hear the language. Let's go back to the language of section 88. 
starting in verse 7, as also he is in the Son, and the light of the Son, and the power whereof by which it was made. See, he turned the switch on. He stood everything up. Verse 8, he's in the moon. He is the light of the moon, the power whereof it was made. Verse 9, the stars. Verse 10, the earth. And then verse 11, you, the light which shineth, which giveth you light. And that's not just photons. That's power within us. It's the energy. Jesus is light. Now let's get to life. He is the resurrector. He is the cure. He is the fixer. Jesus is life. I love when he said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Now listen to Paul, verse 12 of chapter 1. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Doctrine and Covenant 60, verse 7 says, For I am able to make you holy. That's life. He made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance. Verse 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. Do you see the combination of light and life? Light has power over darkness and he gives us life. He translated us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. See, dead things becoming life. Verse 20, having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Jesus is life. He takes what's dead or what's dying and he makes it alive. So that, verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. He took death and made it life. Now let's do law. Verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, Jumping to 18, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. There's that idea of law, of there's a head, there's a top, and he is at the head of everything. He has preeminence. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. One more in the category of law. I love chapter 2, verse 3. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He possesses all wisdom, all knowledge, all truth. Verse 9 of chapter 2, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him. Oh, what a wonderful phrase. I am complete in him. Without him, I will never be complete. Kind of gives a light to Jesus' command to be ye therefore perfect, right? In him ye are complete, which is the head of all principality and power. Another word is he is the source. He is love. 
He is all those other words. But I love that the Doctrine and Covenants kind of combines them into three ideas. Jesus is light, Jesus is life, and Jesus is law. Now, adding one more, let me go back to the Doctrine and Covenants just for one brief moment, speaking of law. And I think this is the gist of what Paul is now going to do. I think verse 34 is one of the most important verses of Scripture. The Lord says, Verily I say unto you, that which is governed by law. Now, that's me. That's what I I have to submit. I have to yield to Christ as law. That's a whole lot more than I have to obey the kings of of the world. If I am governed by celestial law, the law can then, number one, preserve me. Number two, perfect me. And number three, sanctify me. But that cannot happen unless I yield to law. If I am not governed by celestial law, the celestial law cannot preserve me. The celestial law cannot perfect me, nor can the celestial law sanctify me. I allow it to do that by being governed by it. So where Paul is now going to go is God is able to preserve you, perfect you, and sanctify you if you are governed by him. So now Paul's going to use a very familiar phrase. It's just, it's going to permeate through Colossians, and that is, put on Christ. That's almost all of chapter three is put on Christ. So there are things I have to put off. Jump to chapter three, just as an example, verse eight, but now you also put off all these things. So there's things I need to put off. Think temple, think gospel, put off. And then verse 10, put on. So Jesus is this supreme being. He's none of all those other things that people are saying. And then so much of the rest of Colossians is practical help to put Christ on. For example, there's no way you will put Christ on unless chapter 2, verse 2, you are knit together in love. Verse 23, putting on Jesus will ground and settle you so that you are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Putting on Jesus, verse 7 of chapter 2, will root you and build you up in him and establish you in the faith. So that's why I love Colossians. It is the preeminence of Christ. There is no one else. To whom are you going to liken me? There is no one else that compares to Christ. So put him on. So with that overview, let's look at the problems that they're facing. So go to the second chapter, verse 16. Paul says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of any holy day or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, 
from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. And I just realized that we have a JST. Do you want to read the JST? You'll find this in your appendix. This is the JST of Colossians chapter 2, 21 through 22, which are after the doctrines and commandments of men who teach you to touch not, taste not, handle not. All those things which are to perish with the using, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in all worship and humility and neglecting the body as to the satisfying the flesh, not in any honor to God. So that's a Joseph Smith translation. It helps, but we still have questions. And so there's more in the show notes, as I always say, but I'm just going to break down some of this bit by bit. What I see Paul doing is he's calling out different notions of Christianity, but he's not naming them by name. Sometimes that was common, the way people would speak back in Paul's day, is they would call out their enemies or their critics, but they wouldn't reference them by name. And they would attack the argument rather than the person. And that would be also a way to help the audience see the light as they understood it without giving credit to their enemies. So one of the things we see in verse 16 seems to be a reference to Jewish ritual practices. Some scholars argue that Paul here is addressing Jewish ritual practices, such as the observance of Sabbath, dietary regulations, and festivals. These scholars suggest that Paul is emphasizing that these practices were merely shadows or foreshadowings of the reality found in Christ. So Paul is contending that these rituals should not be considered essential for salvation. Now I see this. I see Paul over and over again saying, we need to reread our Bibles. Remember, they had Hebrew scriptures. And so Paul is saying, we need to reread our Hebrew scriptures and see that Christ is the fulfillment of these things. And so the holidays, at least as I understand Paul, for him foreshadow Jesus. They're types of who Christ is. And he even says in verse 17, there are a shadow of things to come. So then we get into this bit in verse 18 where he says, don't let anybody trick you or beguile you with respect to the worshiping of angels. Some have proposed that Paul is addressing angelic hierarchies. There was some belief amongst early Christians and in Jewish circles, that there were ranks of angels. We see this over and over again in Paul's writings where he talks about principalities and powers and those kinds of things. And it can be read a couple different ways. The principalities and powers, as Paul is referring to them, can represent a couple things. They could represent orders of angels when it comes to those in light. It can represent orders of angels of darkness when it comes to those in darkness. And a third interpretation could be that Paul is saying Christ is greater than the principalities and powers of the earth, worldly powers. And I think sometimes Paul is 
multivalent, and he's referring to all three of these. And so in that sense, verse 18 could hold water there in the sense that Paul is saying, focus on Christ, don't worry about orders of angels. And then in verse 19, he says, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands have nourishment, ministered and knit together. My translation of that is going to be something like this. Don't miss Jesus. It's because of Jesus that the body of Christ is knit together. You can get caught up in the weeds, but remember what we're focusing on. And then finally, in verse 21 and 22, we have the JST where Joseph Smith is talking about this idea that there were individuals that were teaching that you should avoid certain things. This is also Paul coming out saying, we need to be careful of aesthetic practices, Paul might be addressing a form of asceticism that involves strict self-denial and harsh treatment of the body. He seems to be warning against adopting these practices as a means of achieving spiritual enlightenment. Now, some people that lived in the Roman Empire may have thought that the Christians were ascetic because the Christians were teaching that you shouldn't have intimacy before marriage. And so some people looked at that as, wow, you guys are really, really strict with the body. I don't think Paul is teaching that we need to beat down the body. That seems to be what we see here in verse 23, and neglecting of the body. Another way to read that is he's not saying that we need to beat down the body. But Paul is saying that he, he, and he's speaking metaphorically here, but he is saying that we need to be willing to amputate appendages or putting them to death in a figurative sense. He could be borrowing this language from Jesus. Remember, Jesus talked about this. Uh, You know, if your eye offends, you pluck it out and so forth. Paul seems to be describing the passions as members of the body. Now, to Paul, the body wasn't evil. But indulging in everything that the body desires without observing God's restrictions, in Paul's mind, that was bad. So for Paul, the body isn't bad, but if we just give in to all of its desires, that's going to lead us into strange roads. And so Paul is trying to walk this line between some of the ascetic practices that may have been going on and the viewpoint that the enemies of the Christians had, which was, oh my goodness, you guys hate the body. And so Paul's trying to teach this, what I call a middle path. We need to bridle our passions, but we also need to realize that the body is good. And I think that's really what he's saying in verse 23. No, we're not trying to beat down the body, but we need to also remember that we need to fulfill the needs of the body according to the bounds that the Lord has set. I think that is the gist of these verses. And there's a lot going on in the second chapter in verses 16 through 23, which to me represent Walter Bauer's hypothesis, once again, that there were many forms of Christianity, and the apostles are trying to keep everybody back on the same page. And I can only imagine the stress that that would cause the apostles as they go and visit these individual Christian churches, and different forms of doctrines are creeping in. And as a Latter-day Saint, I see this as evidence that the apostasy was happening in real time in Paul's day. Sometimes we talk about the apostles died, and then the apostasy kind of happened, Sometimes we teach in the church that there was like this one universal monolithic Christian church, and then the apostles died, and then holy cow, everything fell apart. And I don't read it that way. What I see is the apostasy happening in real time, and just when Paul puts out a fire over in this part of the forest, 
the other part of the forest is burning. And so they're getting buckets of water and they're running over there trying to put that fire out. And while they're doing that, somebody trips and a match gets lit and another part's on fire. And it's this constant movement. And Paul can only be in one place at a time and there's no internet and he can't really fix it all. And I think about this today with the current challenges that we have in our world today with the first presidency and quorum of the 12. And even though we have satellite and internet, how many different branches of Christianity? I mean, if you were to like map it out on the board, you would fill up hours looking at all the different branches of Christianity. And we're back to this idea in Ephesians where Paul says, we really need one faith, one Lord, and one baptism. Can we all please be on the same page? And can we put him on? Can we all act like that? Can that be our longitude and our latitude that I am trying to put on Jesus? So let's turn to chapter three as Paul gets very practical and says, here's some of the ways we put him on. Verse two, set your affection on things above and not on things of the earth. How much time in your head and in your heart do you spend on the things of God? I love verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. What if that were the hallmarks of being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Verse 14, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. I love verse 15, be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. 17, whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. The only way I'm doing anything in the name of Christ is if I'm doing what Christ would do. If I'm doing something supposedly in the name of Christ, but I'm not acting like Christ, I'm not doing it in the name of Christ. Verse 23, whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the the reward of the inheritance. Let's do what we do, not to be thanked and gratified and noticed by men, but to be noticed by God. If my motive is what will men think, or if I don't get noticed, well, no one's going to see me. No one's going to notice me. Let us work so that the only one I'm worried about noticing me is my heavenly father. Now, here's the reward. If I put him on, then I am covered by him. I am protected. Now, going back to section 88, if I am governed by Christ, I will be preserved by Christ, perfected by Christ, and sanctified by Christ. There is no other way. There is no other Christ, Paul says to the Colossians. So put him on and receive his sanctification. And with that, we'll see you next week when we cover First and Second Thessalonians. But before I leave, I wanted to let you know about a new video that we'll be dropping on our YouTube channel tomorrow. It will be me discussing the same block of scripture that we just covered in this podcast, Philippians and Colossians. But in the video, I'll be with two of my sons who are in their 20s. In this video, it's more of like a casual, relatable setting, kind of like you peeking into our Come Follow Me discussion in our family. 
So I hope you'll check it out on YouTube. We'll add a link here in the description if you're interested. Once again, thanks for listening and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.